0: so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: Welcome to the Progressive Britain History Project, which is part of the Progressive Britain podcast. Now, in each episode, uh, we're going to look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting, hopefully, a clearer understanding of its highly contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking about it and making connections between Labour's history, its present and future. Uh, Well, before going any further, um, I probably should introduce... Myself. I'm, I'm Stephen Fielding, Professor of Political History, and um, I am co presenting this series of podcasts with uh, Laura Beers. So, Laura, do you want to just introduce yourself?
2: Hi, I'm Laura Beers. I'm also a Professor of um, Modern British History at American University in Washington, D.C.
1: So, it's a transatlantic co presenting team. So, sort of very glamorous. Um, Now, for our inaugural podcast, because this is what it is, listener, um, we thought it would be highly appropriate, given given what we're doing, what we're called, and who we're associated with, to talk about the the idea of the progressive dilemma. And so what I just want to do is just briefly outline what that is and and why it might be considered important. Now, the progressive idea The progressive dilemma was um, first outlined by David Marquand in 1991, but it was really based on the experience of previous generations of liberal and social democratic intellectuals. Now, Marquand was first elected a Labour MP in 1966. Um, He left Parliament to work with Roy Jenkins when he became president of the EEC Commission in 1977, and then returned to Britain uh, to help Jenkins establish the Social Democratic Party in 1981. So you can see he's coming from a very particular part of the Labour Party. Now, he, he rejoined the Labour Party under Tony Blair, but uh, became rather disillusioned with New Labour, um, I think considering it wasn't really sufficiently Social Democratic, in, amongst his other criticisms. But Mark Wins, while a politician, was also a historian. And um, amongst other things, he wrote a, what I consider at least to be great, but it was certainly a very controversial biography of Ramsay MacDonald. Now, the dilemma of which Markon wrote is, how should progressive intellectuals relate to the Labour Party? Given how the party was, in his eyes, um, it gave a sort of privileged, it privileged a sectional class interest over broader societal aims. The trade unions, in his and his view, saturated party thinking, and not in a good way. So, what should these intellectuals do? Should they stand outside the Labour Party? Should they work within the Labour Party, or even oppose the Labour Party? Marquand, in his career, actually did all three, and in some instances, more than once. So, in outlining this dilemma, Marquand also raised sort of important questions, significant historical questions, about the Labour Party itself. He claimed that Labour had failed to build broad and sustainable electoral coalitions, which is undeniable, because, and this is a controversial part, because of its close connection with the unions, that had the Liberal Party, the Edwardian Liberal Party, been able to survive the First World War, and so Labour remained simply a partner within a broader progressive alliance, the years that followed 1918 would not have been dominated by the Conservatives. So he sees Labour's union connection as being as much a weakness as a strength, and possibly more of a weakness than a strength. Now this historical vision was taken up by Tony Blair to justify new Labour, and some see it as still relevant. There's today, as there often is, talk of a progressive alliance. Uh, And as Unite the Union decides who should be its next general secretary to succeed Len McCluskey, a few are wondering why this particular contest should have such critical importance to Keir Starmer's leadership prospects. Now, to help us make sense of the progressive dilemma and talk about its continued relevance, perhaps, is Andrew Gamble, who is Professor of Politics at the University of Sheffield and who has written about the progressive dilemma in the political quarterly as recently as 2017, but also over the last three or four decades um, has written about probably most aspects of British politics, its governing ideas and institutions and the major events that have shaped it. And just this year, Bristol University has published both the Western ideology and after Brexit, which gather together some of his previous writings, including, coincidentally enough, in the former, an essay on Mark Quinn's biography of Ramsay MacDonald. So, Andrew, um, so over over to you, really. Um, do you think that I've just given a, a fair assessment of the, of the um, progressive dilemma, or is there anything I've missed out? Is there anything I've kind of overemphasised?
3: No, I think that's a very fair... Assessment of how the progressive dilemma was seen by people like David Markwind, um, but but obviously not just uh, people like David who were on the uh, uh, the centre right of the party, but also it was something that many people on the left of the party, like uh, or, uh, like Ralph Miliband, who um, who also had a, their own version of the progressive dilemma and who thought of the, the problem of whether socialist intellectuals or left social democratic intellectuals should work with the Labour Party. So you, you've had this continuing conversation on both right and left for the whole of Labour's history as to whether progressive intellectuals or people with progressive opinions should work with the uh, with the labor party and it has a rather um, it 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 it, it, is it it is a debate which which to some extent does it belongs to a particular historical time i mean even the use of the phrase progressive intellectuals uh to contrast with the um, the labour movement and and seeing progressive intellectuals as a as a particular section of the uh, of the labour movement. Of course, that goes right back to the very beginnings of the Labour Party and the the three socialist societies that joined with the trade unions to found it. So that was that's the the origin of this particular idea. It's the it's those socialist societies were the were where the progressive um, intellectuals were situated. The, the Fabians, the Social Democratic Federation, and the Independent Labour Party. And of those, of course, only the only the Fabians are still are still affiliated to the uh, Labour Party, which tells you what happens to uh, to progressive intellectuals.
1: So in your, in your article um, in, in, in uh, Political Quarter, you look at um, different phases in, in Labour's past um, and you kind of, you think about, I mean, because clearly Labour has not been a very successful electoral organisation, but, but do you think in those different phases, going back you know, to, to the leadership of, of Ramsay MacDonald, do you think the progressive dilemma, what, what's what Markman says about the nature of Labour's you know being saturated by the ethos of the trade unions. Do you think that is that, that does explain Labour's failure? Um is it is it too is it too simplistic? Um or does does he really put his finger on on the on the really key issue? I
3: think it, it's it's certainly an aspect of the problem, but it's not it's clearly not the whole problem. Um, that Labour's difficulty was that um, it had such a clear identity and interest in, uh, represented by the Labour movement, that uh, this gave it an, an enormous depth of support, which allowed it to supplant the Liberals once universal suffrage came in. But at the same time, it did set limits to how attractive labor was to uh, non labor parts of the electorate um, so that it had enormous dominance in certain parts of the country um, and but very little penetration in other parts and this was a uh, um, this this was a uh, a, a weakness in its competition with its main rival, um, the Conservatives, and I think that the, um, of course, the the, the question which Marquand poses, which it's it it's it's a counterfactual. I mean, it's it's if if the Labour Party had not been formed, if Labour had continued. Um, as subordinate to the Liberal Party um, and the bulk of of, uh, what became Labour voters had continued to vote Liberal, whether the Liberal Party would have been a more successful electoral competitor um, with the Conservatives. And and that's, that's very difficult to know. I mean, what we're talking about is what political scientists call catch-all parties during the 20th century Um, and if you compare it with the US uh, Democratic Party I mean there you have a party which had the support of the trade unions but it wasn't a a Labour Party in the way that the British Labour Party was. Other elements were always um, uh, very firmly in the leadership British Labour was unusual. It was unusual within uh, European social democratic parties in having such a, a major institutional role for the trade unions and, and such power the trade unions were able to exercise over the, uh, over the policy of the party. And, and that was unusual. Um, but, of course, we can't know whether it would have been more successful had the liberals um survived
1: yeah the, i mean there is i mean when i was doing my my um history degree many many years ago uh, there was um the a debate about you know with, with historians like peter clark who claimed that you know had they been able to survive the first world war the liberals even before the first world war had been able to tame sort of class feeling and sh- and taken it in a certain direction that it didn't necessarily mean there had to be a Labour Party. That it was like a, a political accident in some in some regards. But then others would others would say, "Well, class feeling was so strong, a Labour Party in Britain had to exist and had to transcend the Liberals." But I wonder what Laura, Laura, you, your kind of specialism is. Amongst many things, is is Labour in the thirties and in particular Ellen Wilkinson. I mean, how does I mean I mean who I mean just you might want to tell people just briefly who she is, but how does she fit into this progressive dilemma? I mean, was she an intellectual or was she you know a, a stooge of, la- of, the, of the trade unions, as it were?
2: I don't think you could characterize her though she did have a trade union background as a stooge of the, the labor movement. Um, just a bit f- for those unfamiliar with Ellen Wilkinson, um, I recently wrote a biography of her, but she was Britain's second female cabinet minister. And she came up, she was born in the late Victorian era in 1891 within the Manchester working class. And she was somewhat unusual within um, the British Labour movement and the British Cabinet, in that she was both of the trade union movement um, and she, she rose to political prominence with the backing of what is now um, Asta. But she, um, she had gone to university on scholarship she was a grammar school student and then um, went to the University of Manchester. And that made her somewhat unique within the 1945 cabinet because there were only three members of that cabinet. Um, her, James Shooter, Eid, and Arthur Greenwood, who had gone to university through a grammar school route um, and not through um, particularly the grander public schools. And... So she was someone who wasn't, you wouldn't call her an intellectual, but she was a thinker um, and who did contribute ideas to that 45 Labour government. And then you also had those members of the 45 Labour government, people like particularly Ernest Bevan, um, who David Marquin discusses, who was foreign secretary um, in Attlee's government, and also Herbert Morrison, um, who was home secretary during the Second World War, and then Deputy Prime Minister. And these are people who contributed ideas to the party. But one of the things, and I'd be curious, Andrew, to hear your views on this, that I find problematic about Markland's kind of construction of the world of the early Labour Party is that you had trade unionists, and then you had intellectuals who came from you know, the upper middle classes. And there was this kind of reverse noblesse oblige, he argued, that operated in this dynamic where these elitist intellectuals had to pay obeisance to the working classes who really dominated the party. But I've never found that this really fits the picture, right? Um, you know, that people like Bevan and Morrison in particular, but also people um, like Wilkinson and Ede don't fit into either of these kind of two caricatures of elite intellectual or you know, ignorant trade unionist. Um, that he sets up as the contrasting paradigm. Andrew, do you want to come in on that at all yeah, about yeah. whether this model really works? Yes, I. Well, I, I. Well,
3: I agree. I mean, there are many different types of intellectual, and uh, um, the uh, the idea of, of uh, the intellectual elite. I mean, people think about the webs and 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 people like that who did at a certain point decide to throw in their lot with the Labour Party and uh, saw the Labour Party as the best vehicle for achieving um, progressive goals. But of course, within the Labour movement itself, um, you're quite right. There were lots of people coming um, through things like the Workers' Educational Association and and, um, the uh the 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 self-help self-improvement uh roots of the labor movement itself which were immensely strong and, and 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 well developed so you had a whole tradition of uh independent working class education and some of those then went on um to university and when you think about the roots, like Ruskin College, Oxford, and 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 some of the other ways in which, um, were wo- uh, people in the working class acquired um, education and 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 then made very significant contributions to the labour movement. I mean, that is a, a very uh, that those are very uh, different kinds of in- intellectuals from the. Uh, um, uh, liberal middle class intellectuals that, that that some historians have have focused on and I, I think i mean that's why i do think there are elements of a debate which are rather um, um, but belong to a particular time and a particular uh construction and i and in, and in some ways the more interesting question is um is, is the whole issue of Progressive opinion. I mean, citizens who hold progressive opinions, and and they can come from many different um, backgrounds. And the, in, the the interesting thing is, to what extent it, was the Labour Party attractive to citizens with progressive opinions, or to what extent, and, and to what extent was the Labour Party able to unite all? citizens or most citizens with progressive opinions behind it or to what extent were they fragmented it's that
0: time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind
1: I mean, I think, I, I mean, uh, although David Markham was on very one, one particular side of the party and Tony Benn on the other, in the early 60s, this is when Ben was much more main, a much more mainstream figure. Um, in his constituency in, in Bristol, he actually set up an organisation which was called Citizens for Labour because he recognised what you've just, you know, you, the, the, he, he saw there was a problem um, for people outside the Labour movement, outside the Labour Party. Um, sort of more middle class, people of progressive opinion, as you you say, um, for relating to the Labour Party. And he wanted to set up a kind of um, halfway house where these citizens could get involved in various um, kind of campaigns, but were not obliged to join the Labour Party. Um, but but he was faced with a lot of suspicion <laughs> on the part of the party about what 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 what, what was he doing? You know, yes. bringing in these very you know these people who aren't Labour people. Yes. I mean, are you, are you aware of that or of other initiatives to try and address the issue?
3: Yes, well, I think I think that I mean that 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 sums up the problem in a way because because I think also what well, and given Tony Benn's other views, I mean Tony Benn believed in. Uh, democratising the Labour Party Um, and of course and and, and to some extent that's that was um, that was taken forward in in, in recent years uh, under Jeremy Corbyn and the the idea that actually people should be encouraged to join the Labour Party if they had progressive opinions and that then they would have a major share in shaping Policy of the Labour Party. I mean, that's been a very um, attractive idea on the left of of Labour, um, as 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 much as the, as, as the right. So it, there has been this resentment you can see uh, against the role which the trade unions have sometimes, not always, but sometimes um, occupied, which has been. Uh, seen as as a way of of um stamping out the uh, de- democratic debate in the party and allowing the leadership to uh come to policy conclusions which are are um which may not reflect the views of the of the members and there's at, at at all times in the history of the labor party there've been groups who've agitated for much greater grassroots democracy let the let the let the grassroots members decide the policy um rather than the uh the, rather than the trade unions and and of course the trade unions have generally um resisted that uh that that pressure
1: yeah and and historically uh as well, that I mean, I am thinking about the nineteen thirties, the nineteen fifties, at least in those in mm. those phases when there was um, when members, radical members, wanted to you know democratise the party, take power away from the parliamentary leadership. That the unions were kind of like a stage army, and their block votes mm. were used to to stop these radicals, these progressives, from gaining very much moral opinion, and they were kind of used by the parliamentary leadership. Yes. Um, to, for, to that end, um, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I've I've come across a few little instances where the people that Mark Wind is thinking of as being these intellectuals and himself as well, um, actually just kind of they're quite patronising towards the unions. I mean, literally, um, Bill Rogers, who would form the SDP in the in the early eighties, um, but he was he was in charge of the Fabians in the fifties. And um, um, I've seen private correspondence from the time when he was in charge of the Fabians, where he basically saying, "Well, the trade unions they they want us to do their thinking for them, right?" Um, And and then in 1981, Mark and himself—that's a particularly you know difficult time for him and his his part his his element in the party. They're about to leave the Labour Party, where he describes the unions as all brawn and no brain. So yeah. I I wonder if if there are certain class assumptions of, of a very unfortunate nature in this in this dilemma as Markman thinks of it.
2: I was going to just ask Andrew, and perhaps you could speak to this: whether there's a kind of fundamental problem of definitions and what the Labour Party is setting out to do that kind of underpins attitudes like those expressed by Rogers, right? Because earlier Andrew referred to the Labour Party as being different from the American. Democratic Party, particularly under FDR, as Mark Quinn really points to the Roosevelt coalition of the 30s and 40s, but also to continental social democratic parties. But the Labour Party until recently never referred to itself as social democratic um, in that it talked about its politics in the um, 40s, with, you know, it would refer to itself as a democratic socialist party. But it was clear from its inception that one of its key goals was to advance the interest of the unionized working classes, right, um, and to bring common ownership of the means of production to empower the unionized working classes, right. And you have progressives who are assuming that in a two-party model that you'll have a progressive social democratic party on the one hand and a conservative party on the other hand, but is perhaps a fundamental problem that the labor party. As initially designed, was not designed to be a progressive social democratic party, but to be a vehicle to advance the interest of the organised working classes.
3: Yes, I, I think that's that's very um, that's very fair, and I, I uh,
2: and,
3: and I think it, it, it points to something which is very important, which is that if the uh, um, if if a liberal party had somehow continued um after nineteen eighteen and had still remained the main um the main electoral opponent of the conservatives of course what you would have had is a, a um a, a a conflict i mean quite a, a a sharp conflict as 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 had happened uh, before nineteen fourteen but it, a conflict essentially between two parties which were um both pro-capitalist parties. Um, what uh, Labour in 1918 clearly emerged as, as you say, was a democratic socialist party with a, um, a, a constitution which committed the party to socialism and to the defence of the, of the Labour interest. And, of course, that was then realised in terms of uh, collective welfare programs, collective security, for um, for the working class, which which provided a um, an offer to the um, to, to la- uh, labor Britain, which um, for many decades uh, proved um, very attractive and, and gave labor a, a, a very strong base of support. So I and I think it it, it was the the anti-capitalist character of Labour. Um, I mean, it, it it wasn't militantly and ideologically anti-capitalist, but it did it wasn't pro-capitalist in the way that the old Liberal Party had been, and in the way which the Conservative Party obviously was. And I think that is one of the that's one of the tensions. And I think people like Bill Rogers were, of course, that um, they what they what they wanted was for the Labour Party to be a progressive party, in effect, a pro-capitalist party, and they wanted to shed a lot of the uh, the trade union links, which they thought. Um, muddied the waters and made it difficult to attract elements which were not already embedded in the in the Labour
1: movement. I mean, in some ways, Bill Rogers got his wish, um, not through his own, not not through the SDP, but arguably through at least the aspiration of New Labour. And I just, I just wonder what you think, Andrew, about the appropriation of the progressive dilemma by New Labour figures like like Philip Gould, who who essentially said, Yes, Mark Kuhn got it right. We should have been more like that. Um and and it was kind of used as a way to justify diminishing the role of the trade unions um and opening out the party to, you know, new relationships with the the Liberal Democrats. I mean I mean the irony being of course that you know Mark Kuhn rejoins while well, Tony Blair's leader, and then he leaves. Um, I mean, do you, how, how far do you think New Labour was genuine embracing the progressive dilemma, or was it just a useful kind of idea to use to justify whatever it wanted to do?
3: Well, I think, I think they embraced it to some extent. Um, and, they, and they did see it. I mean, Tony Blair himself clearly saw it. I mean, it, it was his politics. I mean, he, he, he believed in a broad progressive alliance, one that uh and, and a, la- a labor party which would be a uh um a pro-capitalist and and uh pro-business party um whilst keeping its 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 commitment to social justice and and i think that that model which had been laid out most clearly i think in the the writings of david owen in the His 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 speeches and writings in the 1980s. Um, I think that that is what Blair wanted, and 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 indeed he wanted to go further. I mean, he you know there's no doubt that he he was very deep in discussion with Paddy Ashdown about constitutional changes, and and he would have brought Paddy Ashdown and other um, Liberal Democrats into the government in 1997 had the majority been been smaller i mean he really wanted a, a sort of david cameron uh, 2010 majority in 1997 of course what he got was a was an absolutely whopping uh, uh, huge landslide and 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 that made it impossible in internal labor party politics for him to do what he wanted but then if he had had if there had been a, a uh, liberals in the in in the coalition uh, he would have pressed i 'm sure much more strongly for proportional representation for change of the electoral system, and that would all have been part of this building of of progressive Britain um, as it was I think that the uh, there were still very strong elements in the Labour Party which was represented in the cabinet by people like john Prescott um, and actually. Blair um was quite cautious and 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 Gordon Brown I think was was much less sympathetic to um this idea of the progressive alliance and so it didn't uh, it was it was never fully realized um but except electorally electorally in in 1997 it, it uh you can see it as a it was that sort of election and that sort of electoral alignment which um which showed the 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 potential for it of course it it uh, and it was sustained for um until 2010 but um but then of course it by then it it had it had worn thin and and and, and the whole edifice collapsed and, and we seem a long, long way from it now.
2: I just wanted to follow up with a with a question on that, which is to what degree then, Andrew, you see the Blair government and New Labour as a lasting paradigm shift? Um, and did New Labour finally transform the Labour Party into the kind of social democratic left alternative? And was Corbyn in the sense just a blip? Um, And is this what we're trying to come back to um, (coughs) now under Keir Starmer? Or is this a kind of a revolution failed? Um, Because it it feels to me that even if there isn't a kind of progressive coalition led by Labour as an alternative um, to the Conservatives, the Liberal Party is pretty electorally at least emasculated right now. Um, largely as a consequence of their participation in the coalition. Um, and the old model um, of a labor party that's about advancing a trade union interest doesn't really fit anymore. If you look at who's voting labor, um, it tends to be sort of you know more southern and urban um, than it had been. And so, you know, to what degree does this progressive dilemma model fit the 21st century? And if it doesn't, do we have labor as a progressive alternative yet
3: hmm. I mean I, I I think it I think it certainly you know doesn't work in in terms of any longer in terms of thinking of uh, an elite of intellectuals and a, a great mass of of, uh, of of workers organized in 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 trade unions because as you say the the uh, the trade union interest is 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 much diminished compared to what it was, and intellectual elites are very it's it become very different because of the uh, um, the expansion of uh, of mass higher education. So that um, you know we're in a very different world from the um, the world of of the 1920s when there were you know less than about two percent of the population went to uh, went to university I mean it, it's uh, um, so, so so that notion of it of of an intellectual elite has has um, has largely gone uh, I think I think where there is a I think the progressive dilemma has sort of changed its 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 nature I mean if there is a progressive dilemma today and which has some relationship to progressive dilemma of the past. the The problem, the problem is, if you if you're a in Britain, if you're someone of who, who holds progressive opinions, what is the what is the best political vehicle for realizing those? And I mean, who do you vote for? I mean, do you vote Labour? Do you vote Liberal Democrat? Do you vote Green? Do you vote SNP. Um, and I think the the it's the fragmentation of progressive opinion um, and the inability of any party to emerge as the uh, as the unifying element uh, since the demise of new labor that is the real progressive Dilemma, so um, but under a first past the post system, the only way to beat the conservatives is if there is some umbrella coalition of voters of progressive voters that can uh, prevail in enough constituencies to form a majority at Westminster, and that progressive dilemma I think is is that 's very much what I would focus on for for the present um it's it's really how do you how do you bring together all the different elements which are anti-tory um and progressively inclined to vote for candidates that can actually um actually win and and labor's problem is particularly um after it lost its uh, one of its most secure bases in Scotland, Labour's problem is um, whether it still has the ability um, and, and what leadership would provide it to make it the focus point for uh, progressive voters of all kinds to come behind it. And that's it. I think that's... That's its the, the new progressive dilemma. Um, although, it, in some ways, that too is it. It 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 always was a part of the progressive dilemma, which Labour solved eventually. I mean, it took Labour some time. It struggled in the twenties and thirties, but then in the nineteen uh, after nineteen forty five. I mean, uh, right through until nineteen seventy four, every general election Labour had over forty percent of the vote. And um, you can't say it's managed that since then very often. So it's, yeah. it's that problem.
1: I wonder also, if, like finally, really, I guess it would have to be. Um, what role do do the trade unions play in this new in this new environment? I mean, Mark Quinn's um, progressive dilemma highlighted. But it problematized, as far as he was concerned, labor, the nature of Labour's link with the trade unions and said it was, you know, electorally inhibiting. It stopped it appealing beyond its its redoubts. Um but those redoubts themselves, um, as you know, as we're all too aware, um have have many of them have collapsed in terms of like the red wall. Um and that's largely because the unions themselves have disappeared from because those in, the industries that they used to be Really strong in have also disappeared and so the link between those communities and the labor party has attenuated and that unions now only consist of is it a quarter of, of the workforce and they and they are mostly in in the public sector um, so outside of all kinds of different sort of um, industries and and we have a situation where union unions union leaderships um, many of them particularly you know the bigger Unions like Unite have have got very very left wing um, leaderships, and yet in the case of Unite, I think it's forty percent of Unite members voted conservative. So you've got the unions themselves are kind of what 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 role do you think the unions might play in in sort of trying to negotiate this new this new kind of environment within the Labour Party? Should 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 maybe they the relationship be completely? Broken, re- remodeled, reformed, or can Labour just stagger on like it it has in the past?
3: Well, I I, I think that uh, any any party that wants to pursue progressive goals is is going to have to draw on support from um, organised trade unions. Uh, they're one of that they remain a um, Key aspect of uh, of of a progressive politics, but but it is undoubtedly true that uh, they are very much weaker in 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 Britain than than, uh, than they once were. And as you say, I, I, I think the um. I mean, I I think reflecting on the history of the labour movement uh, is is very interesting in relation to this problem to the way the problem is often posed today that it's uh, we've seen the demise of class politics and the rise of identity politics but actually i've always thought that the whole point about the class politics of the labor movement was that it was it was simultaneously an identity politics and and the whole world of labor which which people like GDH Cole described, um, this was a, a whole community of feeling and of values and of shared experiences which uh, made the Labour identities such a powerful thing and why, um, why so many constituencies were safe Labour Constituencies, and I think you're right that a, that a key part of that was uh, it wasn't the only aspect, but it was a key part was trade union membership, and that reinforced this labour identity and made it it's, it come to seem for uh, many many people in those in in those um, constituencies that labour was their natural representative, um, and I think. It's the, uh, the 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 t- decline of the trade unions and the the changes the changes in occupational structures, changes in social structure over the, the last uh, three, four, uh, even five decades. I think this has it has produced a very different and more fluid politics for the 21st century um, and I think one of the one of the challenges for any labor leadership is to think of of ways in which the trade unions can still be an important asset for uh, drawing people to um, labor I mean I think the after all, the history of the labour movement was always one of of uh, struggles of ordinary working people to improve their conditions, and the trade unions became a vehicle for uh, for that, and that hasn't gone away, and 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 we see it, you know, with attempts at the moment uh, to organise workers in the gig economy that actually. These things are still real. And, 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 and where struggles do um, succeed, the enormous sense of self-confidence and hope that they generate, that feeds in directly into uh, progressive politics and a progressive movement. And, and I think any, any party that wanted to consider itself progressive, let alone social democratic or democratic socialist. Uh, would want to pay a great deal of attention to trade unions um, and and new forms of trade union organisation. The renewal of trade unionism seems to me um, a, a an essential for a successful progressive politics.
1: Well, I think perhaps on that suitably appropriately tentative slightly optimistic note um, we'll, we'll end the, the discussion um, and t- just to thank you Andrew um, for sort of um, taking us through your thoughts on, on this matter and uh, giving us your time it's re- really much appreciated um, and Laura and, and I will be although this is our first uh, podcast we'll be taking a short summer break and then <laughs> resuming a more regular um, um sort of um, iteration of, of the podcast come come the autumn. So um, see you
2: then. See you then. Thanks so much Andrew for joining us.
1: Yeah thank you thank you that was a good,
3: that was a great conversation. thank you.